You with the panel, RNZ National, uh, and we have Ed on Jenny Giblin to this. A state of emergency has been declared uh, in Queenstown, Southland and Gore, with people being asked to avoid travel where possible. More than 100 people were evacuated yesterday after heavy rains caused flooding and debris flow. We thought we'd get an update of what it's like uh, late afternoon now with Queenstown Lakes District Councillor Matt Wong. Kia ora, Matt. Good, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? What are the state of things at the moment, Matt? Uh, at the moment, the roads have all been cleaned up and uh, they're just uh, trying to prepare it to um, get rid of the mud and the silt from um, some of the streets. But it's it's really isolated to um, small pockets of Queenstown and uh, the CBD and Shotover Street and some of the main shopping areas have never been closed all day long. So it really is just isolated pockets that have still remained closed at this stage. Quite a bit of slashed debris uh, around the Queenstown CBD, so that's uh, that's all been cleaned up? Yes, yeah, so I just took a look about 30 minutes ago um, and uh, the, the vehicles have been in there and cleaned it all up now and this, the cleaners and have done a great job at um, making it look as good as new again. So um, it's really now concentrated to the main Brick and Street end where the gondola is, um, so that upper Brick and Street but the main... Um, CBD of Queenstown is, is clear and, and ready for, for visitors to come. And this has arrived after there was already a boil water warning in place there, Matt. How uh, is that? How has the community, community responded? Yeah, when it rains and pours, I guess, is, <laughs> mm. seems to be the analogy at the moment. Um, you know, uh, Queenstown businesses, especially in the community, has been through quite a bit in the last three years, and every time we've had to stand up and, and uh, fend for ourselves and, and make sure that we uh, we are ready to go. And, and this is uh, just another example, I guess, of that. Um, yeah, the boil of water um, has been a bit of a challenge for a lot of the business community, especially those in hospitality and, and accommodation. Um, but we're making do with what we've got and we're um, getting some help from our neighbours as well and uh, trucking in some water hopefully very shortly. Good. Matt, while you're here, anything else that the locals need to know? Uh, No, at this stage we're just waiting for um, the um, emergency management team to give us an update uh, later on today. So keep on looking at the Queenstown Lakes District Council website for updates and we should hear a little bit more, but I think the uh, the crisis has been averted and, and we're over the worst of it now. Good on you, Matt. Thanks for being with us. That's Queenstown Lakes District Councillor. Thinking of you there, Jenny, uh, listen to that. Uh, you being in Hawke's Bay there and a farmer, uh, I, I mean, you know, you've seen so much yourself and others in your community. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. And I think, you know, it's it's tough in the aftermath. That's it, one thing when the rain's coming down and you're sort of in the middle of the crisis. But, yeah. you know, it, it's the weeks and the months afterwards um, that it really becomes tough for the community. And I was just um, talk, talking to a couple of people who live in the East Valley today, which has, was very badly smashed up here in Hawke's Bay. And, you know, the morale is still so, so low. It's a big, it's a big um, hole to climb out of for these people. So it's tough. 11 past four, the panel. Now, Wellington Regional Hospital's Women's Health Service is under so much pressure 
It has told GPs to stop referring patients unless they suspect cancer or something equally urgent, reports RNZ's Ruth Hill today. Specialists and family doctors say this is becoming common practice across many departments. Doctors have been told to stop referring women to specialists unless their condition is urgent. Dr Brian Betty, who uh, chaired General Practice NZ, said there were thousands of patients and their doctors stuck in a pointless holding pattern. With us is Auckland gynaecologist Gillian Gibson, president-elect of the College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. Gillian, kia ora. Welcome. Oh, kia ora. Good afternoon. No going to emergency department unless uh, it's urgent, unless it's related to cancer. This sounds quite extraordinary, Gillian. Well, I think the... Um the advice is, is mainly about referring women through to uh, um, to outpatient clinics with conditions which don't meet, you know, high priority in terms of being suspicious for cancer or a likely cancer condition, or acute services, meaning someone in labour or someone who's got a gynaecological urgent condition. All of those um, women will be seen, of course, but it's about those who don't meet that priority um, that uh, restrictions are being placed on referrals. Um, And I think the situation in Wellington has been highlighted, but I think very similar um, unmet need um, right across the country. Uh, So it's not just Wellington. What sort of non-cancer services uh, are being restricted well, you know, for example, the sort of conditions that might, um, or, you know, that would benefit from a, a specialist gynaecologist opinion and assessment, possibly further tests and possibly surgery, you know, would be things like um, endometriosis, women who've got, uh, or people who've got uh, pelvic pain or problems with their heavy periods, um, incontinence, prolapse symptoms, fertility sort of workup, uh, menopause, complex. Um, contraception problems, someone who's got fibroids in their uterus. So there's a list of things which, you know, that that don't meet the urgent criteria. Um, So, you know, these are are still very distressing and disabling conditions um, and a lot of women are left in limbo, but... uh, um, you know, that, that, that there just isn't the capacity in the hospitals at the moment to, to see those women and people. Let's bring up a panel on this. They'll have thoughts or comments on this. Jenny Giblin. Oh, kia ora, Gillian. Um, I mean, to me, this just sounds like a further indication of, of the fact that we are slipping into third world health system um, here in New Zealand. And I, the thing that I worry about is, um, as a woman, how do, how do you know that what you're facing is not actually urgent? How, unless you're assessed, how do you... How do you really, you know, how do you know if you're not an, ex- an expert in um, in the health sector? And secondly, if if these aren't being addressed, they will be, for some women they will become urgent. And we saw that in COVID, where people were being turned away in surgery, and um, it was hard to get into specialists because they weren't seen as urgent or acute. And then there's a massive catch up afterwards. So I'm interested in in, in how. Um, what women are supposed to do if they um if they're presenting with conditions which are debilitating, um but they can't get help. Julia, yes, look, I think that, I mean a, a shout out really to 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 GPs who are front line and, and provide that primary care assessment and assistance um and having to make a call on it. But where where they feel that you know someone's condition is getting worse um and then to have the the referral deflected, um I think 
very, very tough on those practitioners as well. But I think for 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 women and people with with gynecological symptoms, they they yeah they they need to you know if, they, if their condition is getting worse by all you know they need to represent and have it uh, assessed and hopefully you know be seen with some more Go priority. Back. Ed. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, so don't ignore symptoms. That mm. would be the message. You yeah. know, if your bleeding getting worse, or um, you know, you you know, it, it's it's becoming more significant in your life, then you know, you you must have it. You know, must readdress it and see whether you can um, you would fit the, the criteria. Yeah, Kira, yeah. Um, Kira, Doctor President Elect, congratulations for all. And um, my question, my question was that when I uh, read this story, I talked to my uh, I talked to my wife, and she's uh, she's pregnant at the moment. And and the one th- question that she posed to me was that how how uh, are uh, these institutions coming to this decision and coming up with the list? I mean, who are they consulting and how are they finding that out? And second point is, why is it happening? I know we have the problem of shortage, but um, if you can elaborate on that, that would be great. Mm, sure. Um, look, there is a triaging, what's called a triaging system within um, our hospitals, our secondary care, um, with the information provided by a general practitioner. Um, a decision is made about what the likely urgency and the likelihood that it will deteriorate, the likelihood that it is something more, you know, is, is going to be cancer or pre-cancer condition. So there is a there is a, a process. Um, but when you've only got a certain amount of capacity in your service, then you, yeah, you do have to put some priority on that. You can't, you know, you, there's got to be a system around that. Um, but just to reassure um, you with, with, with the maternity care, obviously that has... Um, is a more considered a more essential and uh, so sort of more, more essential service and needs to be um, you know, a, a priority definitely, no. and that would be yeah that, that, that no. it's important just to point that out. Why is it happening? Well, look, um, I think we're still seeing some backlog due to the pandemic. Um, we know from a workforce point of view, and we're not just talking about doctors; we're talking about nurses, we're talking about theatre staff. Um, for example, anaesthetic technician shortages are, are creating difficulties in many hospitals for those women that do manage to get through the referral process, you know, if they do need surgery. Um, and we're very, very dependent on, you know, particularly our medical workforce, but also nursing, midwifery, on over, overseas trained um, person, people, so um, professionals. So, you know, that's, that's a global Gillian, really nice to have you here. Thank you for that. Auckland gynaecologist Gillian Gibson there, president-elect of the College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. 18 past for the panel. Thanks for being with us today. Now, there was an interesting op-ed in the Herald this week, and I wanted to put it past our panel. Should parents give their kids an allowance? And if so, what's the best way to go about it? Should chores be compensated with cash. A study in the Netherlands found that kids who had been given an allowance with an educational element attached went on to manage money better. But it also found that without that educational bit, their ability to manage the finances later on could flounder. Already a bit of response on this. Heather says money for chores, wrong. My children received pocket money, but chores were done as part of family responsibilities and were never related to money. Well, Neil Edmund is CEO of Money Time. He's all across this. Kia ora, Neil. Yes, good afternoon. So, wh- what do you think? If my 
eight-year-old, if I ask that eight-year-old to wash the tyres, um, does does that eight-year-old get some pocket money or it should be out of love? I think there's definitely two ways of looking at it. I think on the one hand, if you're paying them for a job that they've done, then it shows them the the value of earning money. And if you're, you're teaching them that at a young age, they learn um, the value of it and they they learn the satisfaction of, of earning the money. On the other hand, I do agree also that um, chores are things that should be done around the house as part of the family, you know, you're part of the team. So I think that a compromise is you pay kids, you don't pay them for the normal everyday things like washing the dishes or folding the ironing or or doing the vacuuming, but you can pay them for one-offs like scrubbing the pool cover and ah. um, cleaning the windows for the house or perhaps um, washing both cars on a weekend. Good compromise. Yeah, that's, very. That's how, that's how I would do it. Jenny? That's kind of how we, we operate with our kids. So they, um, I, I don't pay them to, you know, make their beds and do the dishes and cook dinner because I think that's just part of being a member of our family. But on the farm, when the kids are, you know, they're docking or they're rousing or helping out in the yards or, you know, doing farm jobs, we they get paid a, you know, they get paid an hourly rate. The other thing, uh, for me is that my kids are away at boarding school, so they. We give them a little, an allowance in the weekend for their kind of their tuck money and um, to get some extra food. And the rule we have is this is your set amount you can have each week. It's not a lot. Um, and once that's gone, that's it. So they have to choose how they use the money. And if they want to blow it all in one night at McDonald's, well, you know, that that's their choice. But there's nothing else for the rest of the weekend. Neil? Yes, I agree. I think that's a good idea, having a sort of like a, a, a set amount. And they get to or, – or, or they – not necessarily a set amount, but they get to choose what they spend the money on. If they have earned it, then they should make that decision what they can spend it on. And if, if they blow it all on McDonald's, um, so be it. But that's a good opportunity to teach them about the, the value of saving and delayed gratification. If you can get those that sort of behaviour ingrained on them early on, then that turns into good lifelong habits. And so just with a little bit of education around, well, you can blow it on McDonald's, but if you saved up four weeks' worth you might be able to go to a concert or you might be able to um, buy that book that you wanted. Or yeah. Well, like here's that. an angle. Here's an interesting angle too. Uh, does not paying children for household chores continue to undervalue work that women often mostly do? Well, it's not, uh, it's not undervaluing. So for, for me, it was uh, a situation like uh, it was a salary type situation. The pocket money was a salary and, and it came with some rights and responsibilities. So uh, you, uh, you use the money as, as you can, as you want. Uh, but with that, you are responsible to do stuff at home and uh, whatever that might be asked you outside of your job description as well. So um, it's... I mean, it's it's a good way to look at it. That if we don't pay person a person to, did you get pocket money? Yeah, yeah, we got. Uh, I got pocket money every day. It was a daily pocket money. What? And uh, what do you mean? Yeah, we we got like, um, according to inflation, it changed. But it was like ten wow. ru- ten rupees a day when I was quite young. It was five rupees a day. Then it increased to fifty rupees a day as well. So it was like a daily thing. So we had to calculate our spending every day. And it was quite useful because um, 
I used to be quite happy with myself that if I had, hadn't spent it, and the next day I would have 100 rupees, and with my brothers I would say, oh, look at that. So um, it, was, it, was, it was quite a fun, fun time. But I, ha- I have a question. It is a – so if you look at the other side of it, right, just paying or giving the children money when they want it, what are the downsides or the upsides of that? Neil? Oh, I, I think um, there are definite downsides to that because then that creates um, an expectation that money will be there when they need it. And in, in real life, that's often not the case. You, you've got to go out and create that money or earn that money. So I, I think that that sends the wrong message. I think they should uh, learn that um, money needs to be earned for the most part um, Everybody has to do that. Yeah, a bit of response on this, Neil. Paid my kids to cook dinner. The best parenting move I made. Never paid pocket money. They <laughs> they learned the value of work, were proud to be able to put a meal on the table for a family, and they turned out to be great cooks. So from what I'm hearing, uh, Neil, there's many different ways to look at this particular um, uh, conundrum. Yes, I think so. I think it all depends on how you run your family. Um, we we paid our kids for chores. Um, they lent the value of money. Um, I don't think that they necessarily contribute as much to the family uh, activities around the house because of that. Uh, that I think that was one of no. the downsides. Yeah. They they expected to be paid, um, and if you know if, if there wasn't money attached, then they wouldn't do it. So that's. I think that's a downside. My father used I to do like a important. bonus bonus system. So it's like if you if you clean the three cars that we have at the bo- uh, down, next day would be 150 rupees. Your parents were than... all across this. Yeah, yeah, they were on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> Your parents are very generous, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Daily allowance. Uh, very good. Hey, Neil, Evan, uh, kia ora. Thank you for your time. That's um, the CEO of Money Time. Oh, and look, we got a uh, an email from... Uh, direct, a director of financial education, uh, Dr. Pushpa Wood, who says, in terms of giving your children money or pocket money for doing household chores, I don't think so. It's being part of the family and making a contribution to your family. If we start to use this logic, then everyone in the family should also be compensated for their contribution. Fair point, Jenny. They'll unionize. They're unionized. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I think the other thing too um, that you know that we haven't sort of chatted about here is that you know not all families are in a position to be able to pay their children. So you know it's um, everyone's in slightly different situations, aren't they? Yeah, not absolutely. There, um, and I should say, fifty cent is about like. Uh, fifty rupees is like half a cent or something. Oh, so it's, so it's, it's right. Yeah, it's oh, not, right. It's not, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, the panel are NZ National. We have Ed Armand today, and we also have Ginny Giblin. Uh, thank you for your company, as always. Can I just say some? Yeah, some, um, some fairly heartbreaking messages coming through around being on a waiting list. Uh, Wallace, it's not just gynecology, says Margie, that have been turned down for hospital outpatient appointments. I desperately need an endocrinologist appointment for severe gland issues. My doctor has sent two letters of request, but so far turned down. Uh, This is West Auckland. It's a debilitating condition and I'm feeling let down. My GP is tempted to exaggerate my symptoms, but that's wrong. I cannot afford private care, so I suffer with this life-threatening condition 
and I'm otherwise a very healthy and able woman. Another one here, my oh. wife has ovarian cysts, which results in heavy bleeding every two weeks. She's just received a letter from Lakes DHB saying she won't be seen. It's heartbreaking. I think, well, it's, one, it's heartbreaking. And I think the other thing that concerns me um, about Gillian's response of, of saying you sort of, you just got to go back and you just got to keep pushing and trying. But when you are very unwell, you often don't have the energy and the resilience to be able to do that. Well, keep those responses coming. In fact, you might like to email me uh, if you have a longer story, uh, the panel at rnz.co.nz. Uh, and a word on this. A question came to us. I thought I'd just put this to the panel. Election time, obviously, so people are discussing this. Here it was. My partner asked me who I'm voting for, but I grew up believing that's a very personal question. I never ask anyone who they vote for, even my spouse. Am I being a bit unfair? A panel response, please. Now, Teresa Napier says, I've always discussed who I'm voting for, but now I'm older. I realise it's private. I may change my mind at the last minute. It's up to me and only me. Diane says, my husband and I have only just talked about this after nearly 20 years together. We never spoke about who you're voting for during the past elections. Round the panel on this, Jenny. Um, well, I, um, I'm very happy to tell anyone who I'm very happy to share who I vote for with my husband. We we talk about that a lot. We talk about politics a lot with our children. Um, but I wouldn't ask anybody who they were voting for because I kind of think that's other people's business. If they want to share it, great. But um, I, I wouldn't go out and ask people. Yeah, for me, it's uh, it's it's very similar with me as well, because I really like to talk about it. And I kind of wait for people to ask me the question so that I can pontificate and uh, which is quite which is quite nice. And I don't usually have a, a set direction. I most of the times I'm deciding on the last moment. So uh, it, it, talking about it, get, it gets me to think through it as well. But I'm not asking uh, people otherwise, um, unless unless I'm trying to. You know, poke them a little. Is bit. it in the? Is it in the um, yeah. <laughs> catalog? Is it in the catalog of too personal? Well, it's like, yes. it's like what? What are what? What? So it's like someone asking your salary. Yeah, it is. It is. It is quite yeah. uh, personal. And whenever I have asked someone, it always, you know, sets the conversation back like a step. It's it's like a surprise question. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, I, I haven't. Dis- uh, I don't know. So it kind of goes that way, or if they are quite inclined, they will tell you. But it is, uh, it, it, is a, it is a. It, well, it's kind of like I remember growing up. I don't know if this was the same for you, um, Ed and Wallace. But we were sort of kind of taught, weren't we, not to talk about politics or religion? Exactly. We were, and, it, uh, and it was kind of a thing, wasn't it? We were, and mm. we, you know, you weren't supposed to kind of go there and in case it, you know, made people I mean, feel I, uncomfortable. I, I, would, I, would, an I, argument would, or... I wouldn't know who my parents voted for. You know, one can get a sense, I guess, but I wouldn't know, and neither have they asked. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we were no, very, neither. very political, political, very political family. We really, really told everyone who we voted for. If you love and trust your partner, why on earth would you not want to share your political thoughts with them? Other people, sure, but this is your partner, uh, says. I no. Uh, you are well, on the, I agree. Yeah, you're on the panel, uh, NZ National. Uh, I'm Wallace Chapman. And by the way, if you uh, do miss the panel, you can uh, get it on iHeart, Apple, Spotify, and of course on the RNZ app. Ed Amon, Ginny Giblin joining me, 